Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, it is the day after Election Day. You know how we love those days. We had primaries in Florida and Arizona. We want to go over the results there. A surprising result in the governor's race on the Democratic side in Florida and uh, interesting uh, moves out in Arizona. But a lot else going on. Uh, you know, the, the, the president of the United States um, is among those watching uh, a week's worth of remembrances of John McCain. Um, this is this is John McCain week, and the president um, will not be attending any of the events. Uh, that's kind of a mutual choice among him and the McCain family. But there's a lot else going on at the White House. We uh, the, the the scramble to revive uh, NAFTA under a different name among the among those things and. Uh, North Korea. I mean, there's a lot going on. As always, as always, and it is. It's been it's been an unusual week. I mean, we just a week after the the utter craziness of uh, the legal drama and Cohen and Manafort, uh, both with uh, uh, being found guilty uh, by a jury and with a, with a plea. Uh, all of that seems pretty distant right now in the wake of the the death of McCain and his period of national mourning. Uh, John, you were part of it earlier this week. The the attempts throughout the day. How many was it? How many times did you ask the president th- to? His thoughts on John McCain? I, I didn't go back and count myself, but uh, but our colleague Devin Dwyer told me that the president was asked 11, 11. times uh, to comment on John McCain. I know that I asked all but one of those times. There so, was another so we'll report. give you 10. So, so I, I, probably 10. Probably but, you 10. know, to be fair, you were only you were like full, six full feet away from him at the time. Yes, so, yes. you know, he may not have heard. So he did finally comment and, and, is, and has since um, – done the things that I think everyone expected him to do, which is to honor the legacy of John McCain. Uh, and, and you're right. I think everyone is is a bit saddened by the thought of it. There is no replacement for John McCain, as, as we discussed in our special podcast earlier in the week. Uh, but it was it was pretty unusual to see the Arizona primary play out under the same time with all three candidates vowing their loyalty to President Trump. None of them were the McCain candidate. None of them wanted that McCain label. And it is uh, maybe a sad statement on the McCain legacy that no one was willing to or wanted to carry that banner, uh, even in the wake of his of his passing, even inside a Republican primary. In in his home state of Arizona, I mean, explicitly, uh, two of the candidates were running to be the young McCain and Martha McSally, who won, would be, I suppose, the closest uh, yeah. to the uh, to the McCain legacy. But uh, but but she made it. She moved closer and closer and closer to Donald Trump during the course of the primary, trying to fend off those. Uh, you know, two, two candidates positioning themselves as Trump clones. Um, but, you know, uh, Rick, I, I, I think that um, I, I think that we see the way McCain is being honored in Arizona. And I, and I, I do get a sense, a tremendous amount of, of, of goodwill, of love for, uh, you know, for, for the senator who was accused of being a carpetbagger when he first ran for the House in Arizona and had that great line um, saying that, that 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 he really lived in no one place as long as he lived in the Hanoi Hilton prison camp mm. uh, in uh, in Vietnam. And it's remarkable to to remember back like that because he's so associated now with with Arizona, and he made uh, his home outside Sedona in a beautiful setting, and 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 grew a family there with his with his wife Cindy, and the remembrances that are going on this week. Uh, a proud heir to the Goldwater legacy, uh, that Governor Ducey is going to have quite a choice on his hands in in naming the replacement to a, a truly irreplaceable man. Uh, and it's been fun. it's been interesting also watch the politics of uh, of renaming. Chuck Schumer may have uh, pulled a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a, a political trick on his uh, Republican colleagues by suggesting that 
the Russell Senate office building be renamed for John McCain, uh, taking the name away from one man who happened to be a Democrat and also a segregationist in, in Richard Russell, uh, the, the the late senator from Georgia. Um, some Republicans not so not so happy with that and, and grappling with uh, a pretty uncomfortable piece of the legacy uh, where you've got Democrats will say, yeah, name this building after John McCain and Republicans saying not so fast. And pretty remarkable if it actually happens, uh, if that becomes the McCain uh, Senate building. And by the way, McCain, McCain lived in that building. I mean, that's where his office always was as long as I uh, knew and covered him. Um, it, he, it should be noted, as Angus King did, that that building, the shorthand for that building before it was named after Richard Russell was the old SOB. <laughs> it's so perfect. The old Senate office building. Yes, exactly. But uh, they they not long ago renamed uh, the Senate caucus room, which is that beautiful building um, in the uh, maybe the most beautiful I mean, room, most beautiful room in the entire Capitol complex outside of uh, outside of the, uh, the the Senate chamber. Uh, for the, the Kennedy Caucus Room, named after uh, uh, Teddy Kennedy and, and the two brothers who uh, who also served in the Senate, uh, John uh, and, and Robert. Uh, but but the idea that you have that building and that that amazing room named after those two giants who both died on the same day, nine days apart, um, would would be pretty. Would be something else. Yeah, the Lion and the Maverick. Yeah. Yes. And at the same time, John, it's a, I, I think we got a sense of what the next generation of political leaders could look like out of the primaries this week. And uh, the Florida race is the most clear distillation I think we're going to see of that. This is the biggest, uh, probably most important battleground state in the nation. They will have a gubernatorial contest this fall where both men are 39 years old. One of them is a white male congressman, a fiery congressman, is a regular on Fox News and got vaulted to this job really explicitly by President Trump. He's the Trump choice. And the other man, a 39-year-old mayor of Tallahassee who is African-American and Andrew Gellman, was put on the map by Bernie Sanders. So it is Trump v. Sanders 2018 style. And neither one of them would anybody have predicted uh, would, would, would emerge victorious in these primaries uh, just a few months ago. Um, you know, De- DeSantis was a uh, was was a long shot, uh, but but Andrew Gillum even more of a long shot. This is somebody you know the uh, as you mentioned the mayor of Tallahassee, uh, a progressive campaigned uh, with Bernie Sanders um, was you know was 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 really not even on the on the radar. Uh, so how you know Rick, you and I have come on and we've 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 done the podcast after after several of these primary uh, nights and. Um, in, in, in many cases, we've seen the progressive candidates go down. Uh, the Bernie Sanders uh, batting average is not particularly high uh, 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 this year in a lot of these races. Um, but then we, you know, we we, we saw what happened uh, with Ocasio Cortez uh, in in New York, um, and now we see this. I mean, what 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 do you can, can you give me a unifying theme of are 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 Democrats moving progressive? Uh, left uh, in these primaries, or are they moving uh, to the middle? What's what's going on? So once you clear out some of the caveats, which is to say that Ocasio-Cortez and Andrew Gillum by far are the two biggest, and in fact there's way more whiffs from the progressive Bernie wing than there have been uh, clear connections. Uh, I, I, and I don't want to overstate 2016 comparisons because each candidate is his or her, her own person. But in Florida, Gwen Graham, one-term congresswoman, uh, the daughter of a United States senator and governor, almost legendary proportions. Bob uh, Graham, man. Very prominent political family. Uh, she was Hillary Clinton. And 
uh, for at least on one night among Democrats, they didn't feel so excited about voting for her. So much like Bernie Sanders bested Hillary in a whole bunch of primaries and caucuses in the in the 2016 race, you saw someone that that was just gave them more more excitement, someone that that told them to be for something and uh, wasn't the practical, pragmatic normal normal year type of choice where you go with a relatively moderate white establishment choice in Gwen Graham. People instead uh, wanted to, to vote with their hearts and they voted for Andrew Gillum. And on the flip side, uh, Adam Putnam, who was groomed for the job of governor oh, for, for years. more than a decade, he's been talked about as a potential governor. He was Jeb Bush. And in Florida, uh, for that one night and uh, a trend of the year, um, they were much more ex- much more interested in the Trumpian candidate. And uh, Ron DeSantis was that. Uh, Ron DeSantis uh, literally had a campaign ad, a pretty memorable one, where he reads uh, to his his infant child uh, straight out of Art of the Deal, and then coaches his toddler on building a wall out of blocks. Not very subtle about his Not Trump allegiances, uh, and and he he destroyed uh, the, the man that was anointed for this job, and and this is a distillation of politics in in 2018. This is where the parties are. It doesn't happen in every case, and clearly there have been misses by both sides. They're, they're not like a. Trump doesn't win every one of these, although he's won a lot. And, and certainly the Bernie forces, progressive forces don't win every one of these. But this is the big showdown, left versus right. Uh, and and you see it in Florida. You'll also see it in neighboring Georgia, where you'll have an African-American woman running against a white Trump candidate. Uh, politics of race, politics uh of the big issues of the day, all going to play out in, so, in these two big southern states. So, so Rick, I, I hear you saying that this primary in Florida, the Democratic primary, was a Clinton versus Bernie primary, and that in this case, Hillary lost, Bernie won. And now what you're saying is the general election for governor in the state of Florida is going to be Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. That's right. That's right. You remember, do you remember back when, when Donald Trump suggested, hey, Bernie, you're getting such unfair treatment. Let me, let's, let's have a debate, mano a mano. It looked like for a hot second that they may actually have that debate uh, before Bernie was eliminated in the, in the primaries. Well, we're going to get a version of that. And uh, just maybe it's a taste of what we'll get in 2020. But it does test the progressive argument that Democrats have not gone with candidates uh, who – sufficiently excite the base. And in a state like Florida, this is a state of Trayvon Martin. It's the state of the Parkland shooting. It's the state of the Jacksonville shooting just over the weekend. Uh, There's an opportunity to energize younger voters around a range of progressive issues that may not have been there with the Gwen Graham on top of the ticket. So, so Rick, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, we, we are going to have a guest, a special guest here on Powerhouse Politics, a Democrat, a Democrat who was the only Democrat Uh, running for governor in a state that Trump won, who actually won in 2016, a Democrat who is in one of the reddest states in the union and has managed uh, to to become uh, the the, the power in the state, the governor of the state. This is a a Democrat who has uh, just in the past uh, several weeks made uh, trips to Iowa and to New Hampshire, which has me wondering if this could be a Democrat who thinks that if he can win in a bright red state out west, that maybe he could run for president. So with that tease, we're going to come back with our next guest, Steve Bullock. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at indeed.com slash podcast. That's indeed.com 
slash podcast. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Governor Steve Bullock from the great big sky state of Montana. Governor, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you, for sure. So I, I want to go through a couple of things, because uh, for our viewers who, who may not know uh, much about you, you won re-election in 2016 in a state that Trump carried by 20 points. As I believe I'm right, and our political director is on the line here and will tell me if I am wrong, I believe you were the only Democratic gubernatorial candidate to win in 2016 in a state that Trump carried. Uh, you are also a governor in, in, in a state that has a legislature which is almost, I mean, dominated by Republicans. What is it? Two-thirds Republican majority. Um, and now I see you going to places like uh, like Iowa and New Hampshire. T- tell me, f- first of all, how does a Democrat win in, 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 in a state that, uh, that loves Donald Trump? Yeah, and I think uh, if you look at it, about somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of my voters also voted for Donald Trump. But both how I win and how I govern, um, it, I don't think that there's any secret recipe. First of all, I have to show up. I have to go to a whole lot of places where, you know, it's not just identifying Democrats, but where there's barely even Democrats in sight. I engage. I listen. I begin with the base assumption that uh, most folks' lives are too busy for politics and the partisanship that we see every day and we really share some values of everybody wants you know a safe community a decent job a roof over their head good public schools clean air clean water the belief you can do better for your kids and grandkids so i frame often in those values and i think it's important to be for something not just against them so i think that folks uh, going into 2016 just as they did in 2012 saw me, first of all, because I went a lot of places, and also believe that I'd be fighting for their economic interests and their best interests. So try to help us understand where you fit in the ideological spectrum. We were just talking about the results uh, in in Florida, where we have a very uh, progressive uh, uh, Democrat who just won the uh, the, the governor's primary for uh, for the governor's race, Um, clearly from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. You, uh, I, I know you are you are in favor of abortion rights. Uh, you were the, uh, the the first sitting governor of Montana to officiate at a same sex wedding uh, a couple years ago. Um, where, where do you where do you fit on the ideological spectrum? Yeah, you know, you know, I think that there's often um, sort of like, okay, what lanes are people in? And what I've tried to do is not look at things from, okay, is it a far left or a middle left or a right? you know, more conservative, but how does it impact people's lives? So I don't know if, you know, and I get that certainly don't want to diminish sort of the efforts of where these divides, but um, I think I've been able to get things done that impact Montanans' lives, but also then in areas like campaign finance um, and trying to disclose dark money, much more significant than just even Montana, the work I've done both as attorney general and as governor. Governor, I know that Bernie Sanders won the primary in 2016 in the state of Montana. So there, there was obviously progressivism alive and well inside the Democratic Party. But I think we'd agree uh, that, uh, that it's a much harder sell in a general election, as you say, a lot of pragmatists there. When you look at an Andrew Gillum, who uh, the shocker of this week's primaries is able to win, being the establishment candidate, he is a, a Bernie Sanders candidate. He, he wants to legalize marijuana. He wants uh, strict new gun controls, Medicare for all, abolish ICE. Is that sort of ideology, is that sort of vision something that in your mind 
can work outside of very liberal corners of the pocket? Can a candidate like that win in a Montana? Well, I think what we need to do is find candidates because, you know, I haven't spent time with um, him, but he also, I saw at one point he talked about, look, the way that we really got to win is give voters a reason to go out and vote for something, not just be against, which is, I think, one of the things that we have to make sure that so folks can win. And what we also saw is record turnout in yesterday's primary in Florida. And I think folks are tired of nothing getting done, sick of states not getting anything done. So I think that he's probably right, certainly right in saying that voters need a reason to go out and vote for something. Um, There's a lot of energy out there. And the energy isn't in either one spectrum of the party. And I think what we're going to see in the next 70 days is what we've seen since then is both folks from all over the spectrum, if you will, um, getting out, getting engaged, and people are really excited about it. Can this election, in your mind, be a referendum on Donald Trump? Is that enough for Democrats to prevail? I No, I, I think that we have to be more than just, it should be more than just a referendum against Donald Trump. I mean, the, it's not enough from my perspective, just to be against him. It's got to be, what are we for? And I think that, you know, I've often said that if you look right now, we have a time where only about half a 30-year-olds are doing better than their parents were at age 30. So that idea of the American dream isn't always there, and folks feel like the economy's broken. You look to the political system for relief, and time and time again, see the political system seeming to be guided much more by you know, donors and the outside influences. When even Senator Graham said, we have to get this tax bill through <laughs> to get to make sure, you know, our donors are happy. So they feel that the political system's broken as well. And that's what leads to sort of, I think, a lot of the frame of the social bonds that we have. So certainly folks can point out their disagreements with uh, Donald Trump and where the, that's not where the best interests of our country is. But it's also got to be for something. I think part of that for is that not everybody's doing great in this economy, and we need to be people that are working to make sure that they do better. Let's do a, a very uh, short lightning round. Just um, uh, I know you don't want to get in a specific lane, but there are some hot-button issues that have um, where, where Democrats have clearly lined up on, on one side or the other. Uh, so let's go through a couple of those. Abolish ICE. Are you one of those that think that ICE should be abolished? Yeah, I, I think leadership in ICE begins at the top. And what we ought to be saying is, first of all, we need a new leader and a new direction in that. That doesn't mean that you couldn't have an overall sort of review and evaluation of all the programs in DHS. But you're not in favor of abolishing ICE? No, 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 no. I think, first of all, we should say, let's look at who's leading mm-hmm. this entity and the way that's working, and certainly be open to the idea of a reevaluation of how the bureaus all together associated with immigration within DHS are operating. Healthcare, single-payer healthcare. Montana, we've actually took, and we, I think we're the last state for Virginia to legislatively expand um, Medicaid, and you know, we've dropped our insured rate from 20% to 7% today. I think that most Democrats uh, believe that, look, we're the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have regular access to health care. So I began with the thought of let's make sure that it's affordable, accessible, and of quality. 
There's a number of different ways. Medicare for all, there. though, is, is what first, Yeah, but first, let's preserve the gains that we have, not say that we'll have Medicare for all tomorrow. Okay. Uh, and then on, on trade, were you one of those that wanted to rip up TPP? Or are you against these free trade deals? Well, I think, you know, well, and I mean, the news of the day is, and it fundamentally impacts uh, sure. state Canada, like Mexico, mine as well, NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Like, on the one hand, we certainly shouldn't be concerned about the fact that here was a trade agreement that was negotiated before um, <laughs> the internet was you know, even in use. So to modernize, uh, but uh, what we're seeing, I think, in Montana and a lot of places in the country, is just the uncertainty caused by this president saying one thing, saying others. We should always be open to re- renegotiating or looking at trade deals again, but I don't also think that we should be going it alone. Okay, and one one last one. Uh, the um, there's going to be a big debate at some point in Congress over over funding the government for the next year. The president signaling he's going to he's going to he's willing to shut the government down over funding for the wall. Do you think there are any, is there any circumstance under which Democrats should agree to a uh, to uh, to provide funding to build the president's border wall? Well, I think that. Democrats have even said that you can work on border security, but from my perspective, putting a whole lot of money into just funding a great wall doesn't make a lot of sense. Governor, we've taken note, as many people have, of your travel schedule of late. Uh, places like Iowa and New Hampshire and uh, I, I, Montana's pretty beautiful to my mind. I don't know when you need to go to those places. Uh, it's kind of dreary out there, but uh, compared to Montana's beautiful scenery. But I, I've heard you say that you're, you're doing a lot of listening. Rick, Rick, don't be so mean to No, Iowa, no, no, no. They're, they're, they're good places. Montana's nice. I mean, I, I love Montana. There's more but, uh, natural beauty in Montana than in, than in Iowa New Hampshire. Just, okay, this okay. is a fact that I know yes. Governor Bullock can agree I, to. I, I Come on now. I understand. <laughs> so I, you're, you've, you've said you're doing a lot of listening. What are you listening for? What, 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 what does this endeavor look like to you to, to listen to people? To, are, are you actively yeah. soliciting feedback? And what are you hearing? Yeah, look, look and I've also... You know, you focus on some of those trips, uh, went to Arkansas and did their big Democratic dinner, saw some incredible congressional candidates that I was working on behalf of there. I was in Louisiana. I was in New Mexico. So other places as well. And I think, I mean, what I'm both hearing is that people are concerned in those states about what the volume's been concerned about, right? Getting a decent job, cost of health care, making sure you can climb that economic ladder. Um, so I've been able to both um, tell some of the ways that we've been able to get things done in Montana, but also learning from folks as well. And I, I think that rightfully so, um, you know, where folks are really focused is what happens, I think, 69 days from now. But are you running for president? Uh, no, right now, no. Absolutely. Okay, okay. That was a terrible way to ask the question. Are you going to run for president? <laughs> I have... Right now, you know, as far as it goes, I've been out both talking about how I think that we can win in 2020, but also um, the way that we've been able to get things done. But for me, that's as far as it goes. No, I don't have any plans to make any major announcements or anything like that. And I think that folks are rightfully so focused on um, elections, you know, September elections, and that's where I've been doing work. Can a moderate and I'll, I'll I'll call you a moderate. I mean, you may you may take issue with me putting you in a in a lane, but but you, you sound like you know you have you have views that are that are moderate on trade. 
uh, you're not ready to rip up the healthcare system and go Medicare for all, like a lot of the the, the progressive uh, uh, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party wants to do. Uh, you're not looking to, uh, to to go in there and just abolish ICE. Uh, so in the context of today's Democratic Party, you seem to be a more moderate uh, individual who manages to win in a place that, uh, that that also votes for Donald Trump. Can somebody with that profile win a Democratic primary for president? I think that, you know, that's sort of the us versus them or getting everybody in lane. No, I, I think that um, certainly if you have the right candidate doing the, having the right message, no matter where they are on the spectrums, that what I see candidly is the press making more of all of these lanes. And is it going to be moderate? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be a progressive than anything else? But yeah, I, I think if you have somebody out there that actually has a positive message, bridging some of the divides that we have right now, um, that that anybody from any of the sort of areas that you guys want to categorize could certainly win in 2020. Governor, what's your timeline look like? Sixty-nine days to the election. Um, is it? Do you make a decision at day seventy? Do you think there's a benefit to the party, even more broadly, for people who are interested in twenty twenty, making that decision early, putting their names out there on the earlier side? Or do you think that, that that should wait to see how the dust settles after the election? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I mean. I don't know what folks will do out there. I mean, I don't have, I have a legislative session coming up in January. I still have a lot of work that I'm doing here. I've been able to uh, travel some, both listen to folks, but also talk about how I think we can get things done. But beyond that, you know, it's, I don't think folks, you know, I, I don't, I'm not focusing on it, and I don't think folks are either. All right, Governor Bullock, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I, I hope that as you as you continue on this journey, uh, you'll come back on Powerhouse Politics. Maybe we'll join you either in the in the beautiful state of Montana, or maybe one of those states that uh, that, that Rick just disparaged. Uh, you know. why, why don't you come out to Montana? What you know, you guys, it would be a good perspective for. Uh you all to spend a little time out here and see how the world looks from here. I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time over the years in Montana, and I would, I would certainly welcome the opportunity to come back without question. We can meet in Cook City, okay? You're invited anytime you want, for sure. All right. All right. Take care. Yes. Uh, so, um, so, Rick, uh, let me ask you the question that I asked uh, the governor. Can, can a moderate with that profile win the Democratic nomination? Well, present. here's the thing. There aren't that many that are being talked about. Uh, there aren't many red state governors being talked about as presidential contenders. And, John, I, I don't know if this is a correction quite, but it took. Oh, it was incumbent governor, wasn't it? Totally, I, yeah, I, totally yeah, clear. I'm, he was the only incumbent I, governor won yes, the election. There were yeah. three Democrats yeah. to win election. One Rick, of them was in you know, North Carolina, uh, one in West Virginia, but then he became a Republican. <laughs> so it's almost true. It's right, almost true. right, right, right. It's almost true. Yeah, yeah Justice, you're Jim counting, Justice, right? Yeah, so, big, Jim, big Jim Justice became a Republican shortly right, after the election. Right. But but regardless, it, it, look at the, there, there aren't a lot of governors, period, that that are being talked about as 2020 contenders. And, and ones from states that, that Trump uh, trounced in, almost non-existent. So if you're looking at a field that we know is going to be crowded with progressives, it may include Bernie Sanders. It almost certainly will include people like Elizabeth Warren. And it's going to be a very crowded field for someone to stand out and say, look, I won in the place that Trump's popular. We can't ignore that. That's that's something. And how it breaks down, I think we learned from the last cycle that it, a lot of it depends on who's standing at any particular time. That is not where the energy of the party is right now. But there is a pragmatic streak to the party and I think to the followers of people like Governor Bullock. We'll make a different argument and say, you know, we, we cannot just 
pretend that Trump um, isn't popular, that Trump doesn't have an appeal. We need to find a reason, a way to counter that that isn't just being against Trump, because we tried that last time. We tried to run just against Trump and Trumpism, and it didn't work. We got to try something different, and that might it might mean embracing some positions that are a little bit off from where the progressive base and the energy is at this moment. And I'll say that um, it's hard for me to imagine uh, a governor with that profile winning the Democratic nomination. But if the Democrats are to be uh, successful as a national party, uh, again, uh, it seems to me that they have to somehow do what he has been able to do, uh, find a way to to appeal beyond the base of the Democratic Party, which clearly Bullock has been able to do. It's in a small – well, it's in a very large state. But you know what I mean? A small state uh, population-wise – and uh, you know it's 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 hard to see how exactly that his his profile is replicated uh, nationally, but he has managed to do something uh, that the Democratic Party uh, would be would be well to uh, uh, to pay attention and to learn from. Yeah, and it, look, it's an interesting dynamic in our polarized politics in in 2018 that you have people like Bullock, you also have people like Charlie Baker in Massachusetts and Larry Hogan in Maryland, uh, who are. Uh, very popular Republican governors in very Democratic states. There's something about being a governor that can allow you to transcend party lines and and gain respect for it. Uh, the question for Democrats is not just how do you maintain that at the gubernatorial level, but can you maintain it at the Senate level? That really is the critical question in the Senate races in people in places like Indiana and Montana, by the way, and West Virginia and uh, Missouri. All of these places where Trump won pretty handily, the party can't be just what the national party says it is. It needs to have this individual profile and it needs to have people who can say, this is what it means to be a Democrat. And that might be different in a Montana than it would be in a Vermont. And and you you raised the governors of, uh, of Maryland and Massachusetts. It is an interesting thing, something to ponder as we, as we sign off on this podcast, that three of the most popular governors in America are, uh, are are governors in, in, in states where you would not expect to see their party thrive, uh, governors who have clearly staked out a more moderate uh, a direction, a direction that uh, is, is willing to work with the other side, um, and is, I would, my sense, completely at odds with the way the, the, the force of both parties uh, is going right now. So uh, so an interesting interesting lesson in those those three cases. Anyway, Rick, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. We will be back soon, maybe even with another emergency podcast later this week. We'll have to see. 